Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is going to be yet another case for my Curious Case series. But before we delve into this video, I just had to say that I'm going to be sending out Christmas cards. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. As to all of my supporters, from myself and from my mother, if you want to sign up to receive a Christmas card, then you can do so in the link in the description. It's just a quick form, just so I know where to send the Christmas cards to. Um, and of course, all that data is completely confidential and is deleted after the cards are dispatched. I want to make sure that everybody who has shown me love and supported me this year gets a token of my appreciation. I can't as I said in my last video, I don't have enough words for my appreciation. I don't know how to express it. So I thought this would be a really cute way and a really festive way of, you know, just sending you guys something in return. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, there are 50,000 plus people on this channel and I'm not gonna be able to send out Christmas cards to everybody. For obvious reasons, I'm not gonna be able to do that. So it's the first come, first serve. I'll be sending out Christmas cards to about the first 1,500 to 2,000 people that sign up. Um, or fill out the form. I'm also in the process of opening a P.O. box. You guys can send me and my mum a Christmas card back if you want to or anything you really want to send. Um, and I will announce when that's ready and when that's open. I think it takes about seven days to open. I'm going to be vlogging the entire Christmas card sending out experience, um, which will be going up on my second channel because I just wanted to, to show you guys, you know, how many Christmas cards we are handwriting and sending out and it's going to be a lot of fun and I think really a really nice little Christmas video. So that will be over on my second channel and if you've not subscribed to that then you can find a link to that in the description or in my iCard. We currently have almost a thousand people already signed up to receive a Christmas card so you've got to be quick, get your name on there. I'm so excited to be sending these out to everyone. Again you can find a link to sign up to get a Christmas card from me in the description box down below. Let me just reiterate that all data is kept completely confidential and the data is deleted after use. Today's video has been made in partnership with the absolutely amazing Now TV. I've worked with this brand before. I love them to pieces. I love that they're putting out amazing true crime content on their Sky Crime channel and I support the brand completely. They're really one of my favorite brands to work with and I've had the opportunity to work with them again today. As I'm sure you've heard, Now TV are celebrating the launch of their brand new Sky Crime 
Prime channel, which you can get with the Entertainment Pass from just £8.99 a month. The Entertainment Pass will give you access to their entire high-quality true crime documentary library, along with all their other entertainment programming. They also have a Kids Pass, a Cinema Pass, they have a Sports Pass, a Reality TV Pass, so they really have everything that, you know, you might want to watch. It's really the next step in television, I think, on-demand streaming services are really taking over from traditional TV. You can use the Entertainment Pass to watch the seven-part documentary titled Who Killed Jessica Chambers, which is a documentary that discusses the same case that I'm gonna be talking about today. And I couldn't recommend the documentary more. The reason why this video took so long to come out is because I was watching the entire seven-part documentary back-to-back. -back. I had to binge watch it all because it was so interesting and gripping. To find out more, just click the link at the top of my description or click the link in my pinned comment. I just had like to point out this video has not been made because disrespect or anything like that it is just being made to spread awareness about this case by compiling information from various different public sources on the internet as per usual any theories discussed in this video are just that theories they are not facts and any opinions discussed in this video do not represent the views of myself now TV law enforcement or anybody else involved in this case unless otherwise stated and with all that being said Let's delve right into this case. Saturday the 6th of December 2014 was a day that would shake the town of Cortland, Mississippi for years to come. In 2014, the small town of Cortland had just 512 residents, with one of those residents being 19-year-old Jessica Chambers. In a case that would create an alleged race war in the Cortland community, the events surrounding what happened to Jessica Chambers would be discussed in heated conversations to this day. Jessica Lane Chambers was born on Thursday the 2nd of February 1995 to parents Ben Chambers and Lisa Chambers. Jessica, from a very young age, absolutely adored cheerleading and she was actually the flyer, I believe it's called, on her high school cheerleading team. Jessica constantly changed what career path she wanted to go down after she had graduated, going from wanting to be a teacher to being an author. But most notably, a common career that she always said that she wanted to do was that she wanted to become a registered nurse, an RN. When Jessica was three years old, her parents actually divorced, but they didn't split up very far away. They didn't move very far away from one another, which can be quite common in divorces. They actually just moved onto the same street, just, you know, just a couple hundred meters from one another. This meant that Jessica and her siblings all saw both their parents quite often, and it wouldn't be difficult to go between both of them. Jessica's passion for cheerleading suddenly vanished when she was about 15 or 16. Her parents noted that Jessica had begun to enter a rebellious phase when she was 15, 16. She grew more and more stubborn and wouldn't let anybody tell her what to do. As I'm sure we're all aware, it's extremely common for a teenager 
manager to go through a rebellious phase such as this. It's a manifestation of pushing boundaries, testing limits, and really trying to find out who you really are. Sadly, when Jessica was just 17 years old in 2012, her brother Alan passed away in a fatal car accident. This event understandably had a detrimental impact on Jessica and her family, but most notably it had a overwhelmingly negative impact on Jessica. Her attitude began to get more and more rebellious, it began to worsen, and she began to hang out with groups of people which could be described as not being particularly the best influence on Jessica. She began to experiment with substances such as marijuana, and her attendance at school began to plummet. Jessica's grief from the loss of her brother manifested itself in this sudden personality change. She went from being a cheerleader who always prioritized school and cheerleading to this stoner who prioritized school last. This led Jessica to ultimately drop out of high school in her senior year shortly after Christmas. Her parents tried desperately to try and get Jessica back on the right track and to try and bring the old enthusiastic Jessica back. They tried so hard in fact that Jessica's father actually confiscated Jessica's car in an attempt to prevent her from going and hanging out with these bad influences. But sadly these restrictions had the opposite intended effect on Jessica. She began to get more sneaky in leaving the house and according to some sources she would have an argument with her parents and then stay at a friend's house for a couple of months almost like she ran away for a bit before coming back. She began to spiral further and further. However, importantly, Jessica's family never once gave up on her. They continued to love and support and protect her to the best of their abilities. And in 2014, when when Jessica was 19 years old, she began to get her life back on track. She actually went to a, I believe, a Christian boot camp kind of thing to try and get herself back into the right frame of mind. She got herself a job and she was really trying hard to get her life back on track. It seems that her rebellious phase was now over for the most part and she was growing up and starting to become a lot more responsible. That was until that fateful Saturday the 6th of December 2014. The day started off just as normally as any other day that came before it. It was mostly a lazy day for Jessica and her family after they had all worked quite a long and hard week. It was a much welcomed break. Jessica had spent the night previously at her father's house and had come over to her mother's house uh, late that morning. Then at about 12.30pm Jessica got into her car and went to the local store to pick up some bits and bobs before coming back home again at 1pm. According to her mother, Jessica then got changed back into her pyjamas and cuddled up on the reclining chair in the sitting room. She then fell asleep. Between 4.45pm and 5.15pm, Jessica actually received a phone call from a friend and subsequently Jessica told her mum that she'll be right back before jumping in her car and driving off. Lisa Chambers, who was Jessica's mum, phoned her about two hours after she had left to double check what she was doing and Jessica replied by saying that she's just grabbing something to eat and she's going to clean her car and she'll be back in a little bit and Jessica Jessica told her mum that she loved her. Lisa told Jessica that she loved her too before hanging up. Sadly, this would be the last time that Lisa would ever hear her daughter's voice 
ever again. At 8 12 p.m., a phone call came in to the local volunteer fire department of a report of a car fire within the town. The volunteer fire departments were quick to scramble to the scene of the car fire to put out the fire. The fire department arrived on scene very quickly, with paramedics arriving at about 8.25 p.m. When the fire department arrived on scene, they would be confronted with a sight that would give them nightmares for years to come. Jessica's car was engulfed in flames, and there, standing beside the car, was Jessica, who was also engulfed in flames. She stumbled towards the firemen before collapsing to the floor. The firefighters were quick to put out the fires and immediately began first aid on Jessica. They radioed for medical help. One of the first responders asked Jessica who had done this to her, and she replied by saying, Eric. Jessica was then rushed to a nearby hospital and her parents were notified at about 8.30 p.m. Jessica's mother then rushed to that hospital and despite the doctors and nurses' best efforts, Jessica sadly passed away a few hours later in the arms of her mother. She passed away in the early hours of the 7th of December 2014. What happened to Jessica Chambers after she left her mother's house that Saturday? Who had been responsible for what had happened to her? And who was Eric? To answer these questions, we have to go back to the morning of that Saturday. And we have to take a look at Jessica's cell phone locational history. Jessica's phone and then later her car keys were discovered at the crime scene. And her phone was immediately taken and analyzed with data extracted so that the police could try and pin together a timeline of what had happened. But bear in mind the uh, process of retrieving the data from the phone actually took a couple of months due to it all being encrypted and them not having the passcode for the phone. When the police eventually got access to this data and this massive data dump, they could finally piece together what happened to Jessica that day. As it turns out, Jessica had actually met up with two friends that Saturday morning after leaving her father's house before going to her mother's house. One of those friends being a man called Quinton Tellis. They only hung out for a short while I believe they just got breakfast together before Jessica went on to her mother's house. When Jessica left her mother's house at 5.30pm, she actually drove to a local gas station. She was caught on CCTV at this gas station, and sadly these CCTV images would be the last known images of Jessica alive. What really happened to Jessica over the course of the next few hours is largely unknown, and we only really have the cell phone locational data to go on. Her phone pinged cell phone towers close to the nearby town of Batesville at around 6 p.m. Now, it's completely unknown what exactly Jessica was doing in Batesville that day, but we do know that she returned back to her hometown of Cortland as her cell phone pinged a tower in the small town at 6.30 p.m. And at 7.30 p.m., Jessica's phone showed that she drove to the same area where she'd be found on fire just over half an hour later. In the subsequent aftermath of Jessica's murder, the authorities interviewed over 150 people and gathered DNA evidence from everybody named Eric or Derek in the county and surrounding counties. The police even began to work alongside gang informants to try and get any kind of information that could lead to 
an arrest or a conviction in this case. This case gathered an enormous amount of attention online with the Facebook page Justice for Jessica, which was set up by her sister, gaining over 100,000 followers within 24 hours of it being set up. Due to the massive scale of the publicity in this case, people from across the world began to try and piece together different parts of information and different things they read in newspapers and began to put together their own theories. Internet detectives began to formulate their own theories and began to speculate despite only knowing a few facts and despite those few facts potentially not even being true. The impact of what we're going to be calling the internet detectives is overwhelmingly substantial in this case and actually would ultimately have a detrimental impact on the investigation. Now an internet detective as I'm going to describe in this video is the kind of person that as soon as a case breaks online and the information is made publicly available they start to gather all this information from different tabloids and newspapers to try and theorize what had happened as if they're treating the case as some kind of game. Sometimes an internet detective can jump to conclusions using emotion and without thinking critically or logically. Internet detectives can also point the finger and point the blame at people they don't know and have never spoken to using information that could potentially not even be true. Now some of these internet detectives believed that their theories of what had happened were so true and were so accurate and the police were being so blind that they actually contacted the police department and told them their theories which not only wastes police time but it also wastes police resources as they have to send someone to try and follow up all of these different leads and tip-offs that these internet detectives were sending in. These resources were being taken away from an active police investigation. And in this case, the killer was still on the loose, which meant every minute that was wasted was absolutely detrimental to the investigation and to finding justice for Jessica. Of course, a lot of the time, these internet detectives had the best intentions. They didn't mean to cause any harm. They just thought that they would let the police know of, you know, maybe they hadn't thought of this idea or theory. They were only trying to help, which I can understand. But this is definitely a case of leaving the investigative work to the authorities and the police whose job is literally to investigate things. I personally try not to cover a case that is very, very recent, if the case is still open or if there's not much uh, verifiable facts available online. And that's because it's extremely difficult to distinguish between the falsified misinformation, falsified rumors and gossip and speculation that are put out there by tabloids and by media. And secondly, I could never forgive myself if I had a negative impact on an investigation. It's why it's so important to try and ensure the facts that you are discussing are verified and truthful and factual and are taken from credible sources and that you always cite your sources. It's also why I tend to avoid discussing theories and when I do discuss theories I always hammer in that, that it is just a theory and they're not a fact. Because of these internet detectives theories that they would discuss online, rumors began circulating that one of Jessica's ex-boyfriends was actually responsible for her murder. In particular, rumors online began accusing a man called Brian Rudd 
of murder. Brian's images were plastered across social media, with many commenting on his looks and even his socio-economical status. Now, Brian and Jessica had dated in senior year, but they were never anything too serious. It was described by those who knew them as just a high school relationship. However, Jessica had fallen head over heels for Brian and... Just like with most high school relationships, the relationship itself was quite rocky. The internet detectives believe that Brian had murdered Jessica in a crime of passion. And when the investigators were forced to go interview Brian, they discovered that he had a very, very solid alibi, that he had been in Iowa on the day that Jessica had been murdered, and he had lived there since 2013, the year prior to Jessica's murder. After Brian and Jessica had broken up for the final time, Jessica began dating a man called Travis Sanford. And just like with Brian, Jessica fell head over heels in love with Travis. However, just like with Brian, on the day that Jessica was murdered, Travis had a very concrete alibi. He was in prison behind bars. Now, internet theories told a story of how Travis had ordered a hit from inside the prison on his own girlfriend, perhaps due to potential rumors that Jessica had been talking to other guys. And according to some sources, Jessica and Travis had remained in a relationship to the day that Jessica died, which fueled these online theories. The internet detectives then began to accuse Jessica's father of killing his own daughter in connection to drugs. This was due to her father having drug-related convictions from 2004, over 10 years prior to Jessica's murder. The investigators in this case were then forced to go interview an already grieving father in connection to his own daughter's murder. I can't imagine how much more pain and grief this caused Jessica's father. He had to prove where he was on the day that his own daughter died. He was he had to be interviewed as if he was a suspect. The internet detectives accused Jessica's father of murdering her because of a racially motivated motive. According to these theories, he killed his own daughter because Jessica was dating a black man. This began to fuel an alleged racial motive in this case, despite the fact that a racial motive had no real standing or evidence. The internet then began to accuse Jessica's mother, Lisa, of also being a drug user, which was not the case. Jessica's mother didn't use drugs at all. You can begin to see how these online theories began to negatively impact the case and the investigation, and and how these accusations could have further caused pain for Jessica's already grieving family. In fact, a lot of these internet detectives actually contacted Jessica's family directly via Facebook. Some of them even found out their personal phone numbers and called them to give them these crazy wild theories based upon false information. Now, according to a BuzzFeed article, and as I said earlier, Jessica smoked marijuana as part of her rebellious phase, and and she sometimes hung out with the wrong crowd. But despite these minor ties to a drug market, the attack couldn't be pinned to a drug deal gone wrong as there was no evidence of such. Internet detectives developed a theory that Jessica had sold somebody a few hundred dollars worth of bad pills, which ultimately was a deal that backfired, ending up in her death. But Jessica was, on all accounts, just a regular user of marijuana and nothing else. Jessica was also trying to get her life back on track, so this idea that she was selling drugs at this point in her life just doesn't quite 
line up to any of the character profiles given by her family and her friends. Now let's talk about the last known images of Jessica still alive. The CCTV images of Jessica at the gas station on the evening that she died. You can see in these images that Jessica gets out of her car, walks around the car park before entering the gas station's store. You can then see Jessica getting back into her car. Now the gas station owner actually released these CCTV images to the police in an attempt to aid the investigation. He was just trying to be helpful. However, he was met with hostility from the internet detectives. They were so hostile towards him due to the fact that they believed that he wouldn't have released these CCTV images if he wasn't guilty. They thought him releasing them somehow meant that he was guilty. He felt so attacked that he ended up leaving and moving out of the town where he had built a life for himself. He left it all behind. And this was a further example of how the extreme media attention and internet detectives had a negative impact on the local community and the investigation. Now the reward for any information connecting to this case began to slowly rise from a couple thousand dollars all the way up to $54,000. But despite this massive reward for any information information leading to a conviction, nobody really came forward. It is believed that those who might know something are too scared to come forward because they fear retaliation from the killer. The investigators even began to think outside of the box and try to see whether maybe this was a part of a serial attack. They began to look into the hypothesis that somebody had been taking out these attacks on mixed race couples. They tried to find links between Jessica's attack to other attacks that happened out of state and in different counties. However, no connections could be found. The internet began to fester racial tensions that hadn't really existed before between the black and white population of this small town. Nobody in the town had prior to these internet detectives suspected any real racial issues. However, it does seem apparent from the Now TV documentary titled Who Killed Jessica Chambers that there was some kind of racial prejudice going on in the town. Jessica's father tells an interviewer in the documentary that he isn't a racist and he has many non-white friends, but he doesn't agree with mixed relationships. According to the same BuzzFeed article that I referenced earlier, Lisa also claims to not be racist and not see any racial tensions in the town. However, when she was talking about black people, she used the N-word. So I believe to some extent there were some racial issues in the town and there was a lot of prejudice in the town and just racism in the town. But whether there was actual tensions between the white and black communities in the way that the internet detectives described it to be almost as if it was white versus black in this town. I don't personally believe that is true. The internet decided that due to Jessica's previous drug use and her affiliation with bad influences, that she had become a part of this gang. And when she decided to turn her life around, she tried to leave this gang. The black community turned on her and killed her. These online rumors began to perpetrate into the town with even a alleged ban on black people attending Jessica's wake. This whole situation to me in 2014 is just absolutely insane. And as you can imagine with all these online theories and all these, all, all these 
fingers being pointed at literally everybody in the community and every group of people, racial tensions did begin to form and stir within the town. It seemed as if the authorities weren't making any real progress in the investigation. They didn't even have any suspects. That was until February of 2016, over a year and a half since Jessica's murder, when the police indicted 27-year-old Quinton Tellis on a capital murder charge connected to Jessica's death. This Quinton Tellis being the same friends that Jessica had seen the morning of her death. Now, the implication of Quinton Tellis into Jessica's case stems predominantly from Quinton's previous criminal history and alleged text message exchanges between Jessica and Quinton. Quinton had previously been convicted on burglary, drug possession, and evading police charges, but most Notably, he was actually arrested in 2015, the year following Jessica's murder, for the murder of, I believe it's pronounced, Min Chen Xiao. Now, Min Chen's murder and her case is largely outside the scope of this video, but I will give you information relating to Jessica's case. Cell phone records show that Quinton and Jessica were likely in the exact same place on the night of her brutal murder, at the same time that medical examiners believe she was murdered. Now, this goes against Quinton's initial statement to the police, where he he said that he had only seen Jessica that morning. Quinton and Jessica had only been friends for a short period of time and online internet detectives believed that they weren't just friends and that there was something more than a friendship going on. This further added to the internet's theory that perhaps Jessica's boyfriend at the time, Travis, had heard about Quinton and ordered this hit on Jessica to teach her a lesson. But that theory, like most theories in this case, has no standing. There's no evidence to support it. Quinton went on to tell investigators in this case in his interviews that he had no idea who had done this to Jessica and why they had done this. And initially, the investigators actually believed Quinton's story. However, over the course of several interviews and interrogations, Quinton's story began to change and the investigators began to suspect Quinton. The investigators began to grow suspicious that Quinton was somehow involved. Quinton's alibi was that he was at a store in Batesville the night that Jessica was murdered, but CCTV footage from the store actually showed him at the store at 8.26pm, which is more than 50 minutes after Jessica and her car had been reported to 911 as being on fire. And according to Google Maps, the drive from Batesville to Cortland is only about an 8 or 9 minute drive. This would mean that Quinton's alibi wouldn't stand as it would have been possible for the killer to have committed the crime before driving to Batesville. It also quickly became clear to investigators that there had been numerous text message exchanges between Quinton and Jessica in the lead up to her murder. According to some sources, every day for the four days leading up to Jessica's death, Quinton texted her asking for sex and each time Jessica rejected him. On that fateful December Saturday at about 7.42pm, Quinton had tried to phone and text Jessica. He had sent her a text message saying that a friend was coming to stay from out of town and in the same text message he wished her good night. Though 20 minutes later at 8pm, the phone records show that Quinton phoned this friend that was supposed to be coming to stay from out of town and apparently he begged this friend to come and stay with him. Which is a bit weird in my opinion, however this friend decided 
that they wouldn't come. They wouldn't come uh, and they stayed at home. Then at 8.26 p.m., Quentin erased all text messages between him and Jessica from his mobile phone. The prosecution asked why Quentin, who upon hearing that this girl that he had been texting with and he had wanted to engage in sexual acts with had been burnt alive, they wanted to know why instead of phoning her or texting her to see how she was or to send his wishes or that kind of thing, why he just deleted all the text messages between them. This stood out as quite suspicious to the prosecution and they used this in their case against Quinton. The defense cross-examines the prosecution, challenging the accuracy of cell phone locational data from the cell phone towers. Which, if you've watched my videos before, you'll know that I've discussed the inaccuracies of cell phone locational data, especially when it is the locational data taken from triangulation of cell phone towers, it can actually be largely inaccurate. This would cause a shadow of doubt to be cast over the locational data as strong evidence. It would present the locational data as being weak evidence. After all, this locational data places Quinton at the scene of Jessica's murder, or at least near the scene at the time that she was murdered. If this data is incorrect, then there is nothing, no evidence that places him at the scene at all. Despite this, the prosecution used the cell phone locational data to build a timeline of what Quinton did that Saturday. According to CBS News, Quinton confessed to having been with Jessica the evening she died. Quinton told investigators that Jessica had actually picked him up in her car sometime after 5.30 p.m. and they had spent about an hour and a half together. The prosecution believes that Quinton had sex with Jessica in her car before accidentally strangling her to death or purposefully strangling her to death, either after the fact or during sex. The cell phone data then tells a story of how the pair were together up until around 7.30 p.m. The prosecution goes on to say that upon realizing that he had killed Jessica, Quinton drove Jessica's car to the location where she would later then be found on fire before leaving the car, abandoning them, running to his sister's house, borrowing his sister's car before going and driving over to his own house and taking a five gallon container of gasoline from his shed and then driving all the way back to the crime scene so that he could get rid of any evidence, DNA evidence or anything like that by setting the car and Jessica on fire. However, according to the prosecution, Quinton hadn't realized that Jessica wasn't actually dead and that she was still alive. Perhaps she had just passed out due to loss of oxygen. And once he set the car and Jessica on fire, he then realized that she was still alive. So he got back into his sister's car and took off. Quinton also told investigators during his interviews that he had actually had sex with Jessica in the time that he knew her, but he wouldn't say when. The prosecution believes that this sexual intercourse occurred the night that she was murdered, perhaps this was the intercourse that the prosecution believes that they had in Jessica's car where he potentially strangled her. All of this is circumstantial evidence against Quinton, but a lot of it was overwhelming. Of course, there was no evidence that Jessica had been strangled. They were missing one key element of strong concrete evidence. 
DNA. And sadly, due to the burns that Jessica had sustained and due to the car being set on fire, no DNA evidence could be recovered from the crime scene or from Jessica. DNA was recovered from Jessica's car keys, which had actually been discovered by a pedestrian a few days after the crime had taken place. This pedestrian had taken their child for a walk in a stroller and having seen the shiny key ring, they took it home and it was only after they took it home that they realized that it could actually be evidence and they handed it into the police. The DNA on this key ring was therefore contaminated and couldn't really be used to pinpoint exactly you know, who had done this because the DNA was contaminated, there was a chain of custody that couldn't be validated. This is where the trial in this case began to get even more interesting. On the 16th of October, 2017, the jury in this case against Quinton came to a verdict. They announced that they had found Quinton Tellis not guilty on the charge of capital murder. But in a shocking twist, one of the jurors then spoke up after the verdict had been given and said that the verdict had not being unanimous. This meant that the judge had to send the jury back to reach a second verdict, as due to the charge, the verdict had to be unanimous. Only a handful of minutes later, the jury returned with their verdict, and they announced that they unanimously had found Quinton not guilty on the charge of capital murder. However, a poll of each individual juror, which was conducted to ensure an unanimous verdict, discovered that seven out of the 12 jurors actually found that he was guilty and they decided that he was guilty, which meant that it wasn't a unanimous vote. The jury was then sent by the judge back to deliberate and at 5 p.m., they came back and announced that they were in a deadlock. Frustratingly, in this case, this meant that the judge had to dismiss the jury and declare a mistrial. A new trial was then set for September 24th, 2018 in a different county with a new jury. And shockingly, a mistrial was also declared in this trial. Prosecutors are to this day awaiting to see whether they can start a third trial against Quinton. Quinton simultaneously to the Jessica Chambers case, as I mentioned earlier, was actually facing charges for a different murder. In that trial, he pleaded guilty to the unauthorized use of a credit card, that credit card being the victim's credit card, and which saw him being sentenced to 10 years in prison. I believe that he is still facing a murder charge in that case. The documentary on Now TV called Who Killed Jessica Chambers contains interviews with family members and members of the community, which goes into a bit more detail surrounding this case. I strongly recommend going and watching that documentary if you want to find out more about this case. Again, you can find a link to Now TV at the, at the top of my description and in my pinned comment if you want to go check all that out. And that's everything that I have for you in today's case. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case series. As I said at the start of this video, if you'd like to get a Christmas card for myself and my mum, then be sure to go fill out the form, which you can find in the description. We're going to try and send out every Every single Christmas card that we can, but we unfortunately cannot guarantee that we're going to be sending out all of them. Thanks again to Now TV for partnering up with me to bring you this video and this really interesting case. I hope everybody is having a wonderful December so far. Don't forget to subscribe to my channel if you want to see more true crime content just like this one, and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post a brand new true crime video. Be sure to go follow me over on Twitter and on Instagram so you can see what's going on behind the scenes and with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. And now the time has come. Gotta
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.